you do need to think about commitment to a process. Now, we always recommend get some form of CRM system for customer relationship management and treat prospects, potential sellers, as an audience that you need to communicate with. Welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast with business strategist, speaker and author, Gavin Preston. Tap into this meeting of minds between everyday business people on their journey to master business growth. Join them as they share strategies, insights and shortcuts to help you survive and thrive in business and life as you scale your business and achieve a bigger impact. Hey, Gavin here. I want to get to know you. You're part of my community now. If you are serious about significant growth over the next two to three years, whether organically or through acquisition, let's jump on a call. Let me understand you and your business that much more so that I can come up with some suggestions that you can get on with implementing right now. Go to bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. That's bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. Hey, Gavin here. Welcome back to the Business Mastermind podcast and to another in my mini series of buy, build and sell. Today, I'm talking with Guy Bartlett. I've been wanting to get Guy on the podcast for a little while now. Um, he is of the Business Buyers Club and also of the Fidelis Group, who specialise in partnering with business owners to help them exit their business, help them to grow and scale and exit their business. We have a great conversation that talks you through the early stages of your business acquisition journey, some of the pitfalls to avoid some of the things that you need to get right, including a really good distinction of the four places that you can go to in order to get deal flow, in order to source new deals. This one's a little bit longer, but it's packed full of information. So enjoy, get yourself a cup of tea or enjoy your drive as you listen to Guy Bartlett from the Fidelis Group. Hi, Gavin here and welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. I'm really, really chuffed to have got the opportunity to be joined by Guy Bartlett of the Fidelis Group, the Fidelis Group. So Guy, welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. Thanks, Gavin. Great to be here. So just before we sort of launch into strategies around and your experience around buying businesses and growing them, can you share with the listeners a bit about your background and then who the Fidelis Group are? Yeah, sure. So um I came into the whole topic of uh, buying companies and growing through acquisition um, really as an answer to a classic challenge that a lot of business owners and operators have. So in the mid-90s to the early 2000s, I effectively grew a business from scratch uh, into a seven-figure company in the marketing services sector. So we became um, quite significant players in retail direct marketing. So I, uh, with my team, created the JD Sports Gold Card Loyalty Program. We won wow. National Retail Loyalty Program of the Year uh, for two years. Um, we were heavily involved in the transformation of iced and frozen foods into online uh, and direct selling. Um, same with Sainsbury's Wine. So quite a number of high-profile blue-chip clients um, at that stage. And I had my first taste, really, of doing deals was... Uh, helping my then partner to sell part of his business to a larger group to help us to grow that company, um, which got reversed a a short time later. So that was really quite interesting. So it probably whet my appetite, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But we got to the early 2000s and we we did that kind of classic bump along the ceiling of how do we grow beyond here? We'd we'd seen significant growth, you know, good, good business, making money, 
but all the cash kind of went back into that that business really uh, and you run out of capability in a lot of cases uh, in terms of resources people time money yeah um, but still had a desire to go to the next level really and I was always a big fan of um, the likes of Sir Martin Sorrell mm-hmm. saw what he did with with WPP uh, and thought okay how do you do that um, you know w- w- with little resource really so I did quite a lot of reading and research into into the the process, and it occurred to me that if we started to acquire our supply chain, because um, we spent quite a lot of money with uh, mailing houses and data service companies and so on and so forth, many of whom were were selling to a similar client base that that we wanted to sell to, so we could expand our client base, lock in more of the profit in the group, but also um, you know also sort of expand our services really. So. That was the logic behind it. But then, of course, the challenge is, well, how do you do that when you've got no spare cash on a balance sheet? Um, how do you get to a point where you can expand sideways or, or upwards, really? And so the whole concept of essentially vendor finance stroke leverage deals um, was what was on my mind. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, uh, invoice finance had been around for a while. Yes. Um but had a pretty bad name. It mm. was generally known as factoring and yeah. it was generally regarded as kind of last resort city. If you started using it, it was usually a red flag to, to clients really. So we had a number of interesting technical challenges to overcome. Um, but I, I, I had a kind of seminal moment. I fractured my spine in 2004, split with wow. my then business partner. It was kind of the universe is telling me something. Yeah. So I thought, you know what, I'm I'm not going to do organic again, although I did <laughs> anyway. But um, I'm going to try and try my hand at this thing called acquisition, really. So um, I, when I came out of hospital, I got involved in an organic startup, and we raised a lot of money with VC. So that was an interesting journey. And simultaneously, we were looking for companies to buy, and we kind of got money from VCs and two sellers going, yeah, we'll give you the money, you know, the business or the money almost at the same time. It's like, oh, okay, it's interesting. So I did two deals in early 2006. That was my first acquisitions. Uh, and they were very much kind of leveraged on the balance sheet, fixing a lot of problems in the businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the companies were really bad at, at cash management. So we were able to release a lot of cash and value back to the seller. Uh, and, and at the same time, kind of grow those those companies really. So, um, so that was my first taste. And I, I, if I'm honest, I look back with a bit of mixture of horror and fascination that I was as naive as I was. Um, I thought, oh, you know, this will be easy now. Um, you know, it beats working for a living and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, uh, and so went on to have some success. Did more deals between 2006 2012. But the last company that I bought which was a nice little business. Um, we ended up selling it to an investment group for a few quid, having diverted resources into other group activities, which again, with the benefit of hindsight, was not the best strategy. So I did a bit of that kind of, you know, sit on a hillside and think, what's it all about? Um, at which point a, a number of friends of mine, you know, approached me and said, look, how about you teach this stuff? Because I'd written a book, uh, How to Buy Companies and Business Magic, um, but I hadn't really thought much about it. It was almost to kind of get it off my chest type mm-hmm. thing, yes. my journey. Um, and I just wanted to share it with other business owners, really, that were interested. So this is how you do it. Because people do, they do kind of look at you in disbelief when when you when you buy a business in, in that manner. And they kind of go, how did you do that? that that's not possible. 
I don't know if you've come across that, Gavin. I, I certainly have, yeah. Do you sort of get that? Yeah, it, yeah. it's definitely a, an unusual activity when you're not a corporate. So, yeah. so I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. And I've always had a passion for teaching and sharing knowledge and so on. So uh, that led me to form the Business Buyers Club in 2014. Um, and we started running courses 2015 onwards. And in that organization, we've now trained about 150 entrepreneurs and I've been hands-on involved in 24 deals across the club in, in the year since 2015 Fantastic. when we did the first course. Uh, and collectively, they've, they've bought about £50 million worth of business. So, um, And, and the, the, the pleasurable thing is basically using my processes and using my systems, which in all truth uh, are available to anybody. It's not, it's not like a special source that I created. You know, these are processes that you've done. Uh, others on your podcast have talked about um, yep. it's, it's really about finding the appropriate strategy for you, your business, what you're trying to achieve, uh, uh, and then using the tools that are available, really. So once somebody's been through one of those trainings, been through the, the, the Business Buyers Club, um, where, those that get traction early, mm-hmm. those that get deals relatively quickly afterwards, mm-hmm. what are they doing differently than the ones that never really get it going or they try, but they don't seem to manage to get a deal over the line? What's the difference that makes the difference in your experience? Um, if, I, if I look at the individuals that have been successful, I think for us, because I teach more about using debt and equity yeah. uh, rather than you know pure no money in um Kind of what are sometimes called one pound deals, but they're not. Yeah. Good that. But I, I, I believe that debt is a is a useful leverage to improve the size and value of a deal that's possible. Sure. So we tend to coach more towards multi million pound acquisitions rather mm-hmm. than smaller deals. So yeah. we're not buying a job as such. That's a perfectly yeah. viable strategy for some people. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the first thing. That, and that, by the way, is one of the, one of the biggest challenges, isn't it, with a smaller business that's with an EBITDA sub a million is that you end up taking the place of the business owners that are retiring or exiting. Pretty much, pretty much. So a lot of our time we spend trying to dig beneath the surface to understand the quality and level of second tier management. What are we stepping into? What What's available mm-hmm. when that owner manager departs? Um, and no matter how many times they tell me, oh, yeah, you know, I'm... I'm, I don't need to be there anymore. It's like, okay, we asked the litmus test. How many months could you be away from the business business before it fell over? You then get that pause and uh, a rolling of the eyes and uh, it varies between three months and six months. And some of that yes. is because they can't let go. Mm-hmm. And some of it is because they genuinely, you know, don't have a business that, that can't manage without them for a period of time. So it's just understanding that distinction really. But I think the key qualities are people that have, got a reasonable amount of scar tissue as i call it yeah um, been around the block and um, been in business in one form or another had some setbacks um you know life's a great teacher uh and come back from setbacks and challenges and learned from them and, and and applied the learnings really so of all the people that have been most successful they tend to be that kind of character um and perhaps have an existing business where they want to they want to diversify or change what they do. We, we've had some success with uh, some very good um, franchise owners. Obviously, with a franchise, the challenge there is there's no long-term equity value. No. As long as you're in the franchise, it's making money, and some can be very profitable. But when the franchise term finishes, that's it, it's done, unless you then go again, and then you're still locked in again. So it's very difficult to realize long-term equitable value from franchise. 
but but the skill set required to run one successfully is quite applicable here. So some of those people have proved to be very good uh, at applying the, the ideas and, and and moving away from that sort of dependence on the franchise model. And others are just people that have you know, got some some experience and uh, and proved. Uh, I would say tenacity is one of the the number one feature you know traits that people need. Um, a willingness to dust yourself off and go again when you get a setback yeah. and you will yeah. get setbacks. Um, you know, I've had deals fall over on the day of completion with money in the bank at the solicitor's client account ready to go. Yeah. And the vendor's just gone, mm, I can't do this and had what I call seller's remorse. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's a tricky one. So we talk a lot about the benefits of having significant deal flow to be able to go, do you know what? It's not a problem. I've got five more over here mm. because when you've got that, going on it's much easier for you to go no it's fine it's not a problem Uh, and and that ability to walk away rather than get dragged into what i call deal fever Um, and where where you get quite excited about one particular deal and forget about some of the other key things and i my business partner and i have fallen into that that very very trap we've been cognizant of the fact that we're doing it but our our deal that that i think our biggest area for growth and development at the moment is growing that deal pipeline and that deal flow so that we don't fall into that trap again because you have that highs of expectation hoping the deal will come out of it and if it doesn't then you just left floundering a little bit until you find the next one yeah absolutely And, and again to answer your question i think those that embrace the concept of broadening deal flow as much as possible again tend to be the ones that that succeed better um you know i've got uh guy recently phil who bought his first deal um where are we now earlier this year i think he's about to close on his second he's got three more in the pipeline it's that setting yourself up to be a professional acquirer as opposed to oh i've got one deal i'm now going to play in that company which to be frank is what i did Hmm. you know i kind of the first two deals was very much oh great i've done these deals now i'll make myself an md and actually that's not what you want to do if you can avoid it so um, yeah, the, what I call tinkerability, um, it, it, the ability to tinker because you can, not because you should, um, like that. It, it is, yeah. a, is something that you want to try to avoid as much as possible. And what do you find is working well at the moment and, and, and your students and um, mentees find is working well in terms of sourcing opportunities and deals? Well, there's always the broker market. Um, and I don't know if you if you have much experience of that marketplace and, yeah. and the way that they operate and their sure. business model um, has its challenges. I'll, I'll sure. put it no no worse than that. Um, but there are there are obviously a, 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 a they hoover up probably, I don't know, probably fifty million pounds worth of fee revenue collectively. And so they represent a substantial chunk of the marketplace for good or for ill. So you can't afford to ignore the broker market, but but equally you can't afford to be wholly dependent on them because of all the, the challenges that go with them. So what we teach is, is really to focus on four other direct routes. So aside from your own kind of obvious social media presence, things like LinkedIn and, and others, um, what, what we work hard at is fostering relationships with um, complementary uh, organizations, obvious ones being accountants, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are, representing clients thinking about retiring it's the probably the first place that most sellers go to to have a conversation um secondly we're building relationships with wealth managers because wealth managers need sellers to have that liquidity event in order for them to do something with the money so 
you know, they, they, they're quite a useful relationship to have, bearing in mind, of course, that they're not directly influencing the seller, but often they can help to broaden your network. So through our relationships, we've been introduced to people earlier on in the supply chain, like accountants going, ah, I've got this deal imminent or coming. So let's have that earlier conversation. Um, again, M&A lawyers, um, yeah. although lawyers tend to get brought in when the decision's been made. And ideally, you want to try to have a conversation before any firm decision's made. So to that end, accountants and corporate finance teams. Yeah. Uh, word of caution on corporate finance teams. My own experience is some of them are thinly disguised brokers. Um, <laughs> and in truth, right. have the same challenge right. that you have with brokers. Um and not all brokers are bad by any means, um, but uh, try and find the corporate finance teams that are actually accountants yes. and, and have a better view of the numbers and a bit more realistic, if you like, in terms of deal and deal structure. So those are probably the, the four categories that, that they are the four categories that we encourage people to look at developing a relationship with, apart from brokers and apart from you know direct communication, obviously direct mail. Um is the other key method. Uh, and it's it's possible to create databases from a number of different ways. So the simplest one is just go and scrape Yell, frankly. Yeah. So, you know, choose a sector that, that you're interested in and go to Yell and, and build a simple Excel database and, and mail it. Uh, yeah. It would be the, the easiest, cheapest way to start. You know, you could and, get- And what's the positive response rate do you find to, to those mail outs? Um, if you're doing cold data of that nature, as basic as that, you're going to get a fairly low response rate, mm. probably half to 1%, I, I yeah. would estimate. Yeah. What we did is create um, some bespoke software with CreditSafe. CreditSafe oh, yeah. is um, yeah. um, one of the leading, I think it's the, the major supplier of credit rating services in the UK, um, but they also do provide data. So we created some bespoke software where we wanted to focus on shareholders uh, and we focused on shareholders by age and ideally size of business. And then from that, we get between, I'd say two to 3% response to cold direct mail, which in direct mail terms is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and, and obviously there's a filtration process from that as well. Um, but you can also go to Experian. So what I would suggest people do is don't talk to Experian's marketing services, but talk to their credit people because you'll get better quality data, believe it or not. Same organization, but different data sets. So that's my top tip in terms of data sourcing. Um, you could do something esoteric like go to Fiverr.com or Upwork and, and commission someone in India to do some data scraping. Um, you know, it, it just depends on, on, on what you want to do. But certainly, I think it, what I would call a drip feed, a continuous, steady flow of direct mail will produce, uh, hopefully, one or two half decent leads. Because for me, it's not about volume. It, it's the it's the filtration that I'm trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. we, we generate now with our marketing in Fidelis, which is the business that I joined Terry and Sean with off the back of the business buyers club. So we generate around about 35 leads a week uh, through our marketing system. Um, but much of that is not what we're looking for because we've become quite focused in certain sectors. Um, but it's possible to, you know, to generate that kind of 
lead volume once you've got all those different components working in sync effectively. Hey, Gavin here. I want to get to know you. You're part of my community now. If you are serious about significant growth over the next two to three years, whether organically or through acquisition, let's jump on a call. Let me understand you and your business that much more so that I can come up with some suggestions that you can get on with implementing right now. Go to bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. That's bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. Obviously, a number of uh, other training uh, providers, uh, experts in this space who are advocating the use of direct mail for letters going out. Yep. Do you find that you've seen any drop off in success of that? Because there's a lot of people now sending out letters and if some, a few people lock onto one sector, then businesses are receiving several letters. So like any of these good strategies, they may have been particularly great in the early days, but get overused. Have you have you had any experience of that or are they still steadily giving you two to three percent? It's it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we in, in the club, we have uh, quite a wide range of of uh, mentees if you like targeting different market sectors and and sometimes there's no particular rhyme and reason we, we, we've had guys in different parts of the country so obviously a ge- geographical focus looking for similar types of companies and and people in the north have had you know quite good response rates and people in the south next to nothing right. so there's no logic to that doesn't same letter same apparent target base, um, but you know different response rates really. So that's it's always a bit of a head scratcher. Um, you can test different letter format, you know, classic direct mail. Have a, what's called an A and a B test, mm-hmm. and see which one you know does pull a better response. Um, but uh, so that that's a, a difficult one to answer. You know, it's some and and also I, I'm a fellow of the Institute of Direct Marketing from my my marketing days and. We always used to talk about ready, willing, and able. So when someone pe- receives a piece of direct mail, they have to be ready, willing, and able in order to respond. So sometimes it's about commitment to continuous contact. Um, you know, I remember vividly we, one company we were looking at buying, which was a portaloo business. You know, we said to them, "What's your marketing process?" And they and they literally kind of went, "Oh, we tried that once. It didn't really work." You know, the concept of marketing being a one-off hit that either does or doesn't work is is an wow. to me. So yeah. you do need to think about commitment to a process. Now, we always recommend get some form of CRM system for customer relationship management and treat prospects, potential sellers, as an audience that you need to communicate with frequently and at different levels as well. So it's not just direct mail, but you know, perhaps you can reach out through LinkedIn or other platforms, or, or I mean, I don't advocate email. Uh, I think email is almost disrespectful to a seller to, to try to send blanket email. Um, but you know, email could work. It just depends on on who your audience is, really. So there's never a really one size fits all approach, in my experience. Um, you know, we we try to encourage people to to test different processes, really. Um, but direct mail overall is still a good channel because there's much less of it globally than there ever was. So when people get a physical piece of paper in the post, it is still going to stand out compared to an email approach or a LinkedIn approach or any other kind of digital approach. I do believe that, you know, letters are, are, are a a good thing to, to use. 
but you just have to test and test and test and test really until you find the thing that works. So let's say you, you've, you've got a positive lead that's come back. You, you mentioned a little earlier about helping, um, certainly in your focus within Fidelis and helping um, your your clients in the, in, the, in the group focus on multi-million turnover yeah. acquisitions. Yeah. So usually second tier of management and a greater degree of sophistication, whether they're looking to retire, let's assume that they're obviously open to the conversation and being ready, willing and able to respond. Yeah. How do you take that next step? Because you, the danger is you have it all clearly mapped out in your mind. And on the first date, you're asking to, to get married. And so it, it, there's obviously a big rapport and trust building piece. Having yeah. done a number of deals behind you, you've got that track record, but your students haven't. So how do you help them navigate that critical next stage? Well, same same approach that we still take now, to be honest, and that is that I encourage everybody um, interested, step away from the numbers, which is where most people go straight away, and step away from what I would call the kind of the classic, um, you know, offer counter offer negotiation, and try really hard to get under the skin of the motivation of the vendor. I mentioned mm-hmm. before about you know seller's remorse um, that happens. Uh, what we try to do is to really get sure that the seller has got the whole concept of exiting clear in their minds. And we ask some pretty searching questions in in the first engagement. So yes, we'll do an initial look, you know, at the deal and get a sense of the numbers clearly. But beyond that, I'm more interested in why they want to sell. You know, oftentimes we'll go, this is a great business. Why are you selling it? Yeah. At a, a guy who 10 years built the business up and I said, you've got a second tier management, you live in Ireland, why are you flogging it? You know, and, and his reply was, was quite interesting. It's kind of, uh, feels like the time, I said, but you're not getting the point. I'm, I'm, I'm not questioning whether you can or you can't sell it. What I'm saying is why don't you just take, you know, a dividend and, mm-hmm. and let the management team get on with it. And he literally hadn't conceived that as an option. And, and that sometimes is the case. And the thing is, if you, I've had experience where you go down the road of a, a traditional kind of offer, counter offer and so on. And then on, on a few occasions, the vendors have gone, do you know what, we can just do this ourselves. Yes. And, yeah. and execute what's called a Vimbo, you know, yeah. to the management team, because you kind of show them the way. Yes. Um, so I want to know really early on in the relationship, uh, am I dealing with someone who genuinely is, is done? You know, they're, they're, they're over the fence. Yeah. <laughs> not just looking over the fence, but they're there, they're in the field and they want to be in the field. Yeah. That's really, really important because if, if you can understand that, you can start to build rapport and you can start to build a, a collaborative uh, a deal structure rather than a, a um, what is all too often a, a very sort of confrontational, here's my offer, here's your offer, here's my, and we'll sure. try and meet in the middle. Sure. Um, and, and lawyers are some of the worst for that. They're absolute nightmare. I call them the deal prevention police because <laughs> they're so geared towards someone trying to have it over against somebody else. And this clause is smarter than that clause. And and, and they're a real challenge uh, in, in that sort of mindset of I've got to win. Somebody's got to lose. And it shouldn't be a, a win-lose. It should be here's the best solution, um, you know, especially with the inevitable changes to corporate corporation tax uh, sorry not corporate cgt capital gains tax that's looming large you know we're seeing a big uptick now with with vendors around oh my god you know all these years 
I've been building the value of this business and it's just about to be snatched away in terms of tax take, as it were. So we're seeing a lot of activity around that at the moment, which is quite interesting. Um, so my advice is always really spend quality time trying to build rapport and understand genuinely how motivated a vendor is. You know, we actually ask the question, we have a fairly detailed questionnaire that we work through. And we say, on a scale of one to 10, where are you in terms of motivation? And I'll pause and I'll wait to see what their response is. Now, if they come piling in, at, I'm a 10, I'm, a t I'm done, I'm, I'm a 10, I'm out of here, great. But if there's a, uh, well, mm, yeah, I, well, I'd say I'm, I'm an eight. And you kind of go, no, you're not, you're a six, you're a five. Yeah, yeah. You know, because there's that um, moment. And when you get that um, moment, that tells you that they're not 100%. Um, so that, that that's what you've got to dig into. Now, it's not to say they won't get to 100% as you build the relationship and you discuss the deal and what they're trying to achieve. But all too often, they're motivated and driven by sometimes external forces, whereas in their heart of hearts, and 80, 90% of buying owner-managed businesses is an entirely emotional experience. Sure. It's not a corporate. It's not You're not buying from, you know, a PE house or, or, or a corporate entity. You, you're buying from flesh and blood that have spent 20, 30, 40 years building their baby. life. Mm. And it's their life, you know, and it's a real wrench for them to, you know, to, to do the deal in, in many cases. And in, in many cases, they haven't really worked out what they're going to do with their time afterwards. Oh, hugely. Yeah. I mean, one of our key questions is, you know, what's the sale going to do for you? What are you going to mm. do next? Uh, and, you know, we Terry and I had a meeting with a guy we often refer back to who said, oh, I'm going to get my golf handicap down to single figures. And we're like, OK, so when you've done that, then what are you going to do? And he literally is like, I don't know. And he sat there with his Rolex watch and he's got a nice car and the business is a lifestyle business. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And we said, well, OK, well, all right. Different question. then. you know, if you had a magic wand, what, what would you do to make the business better? And he lit up. He just started talking about his company again. You know, yeah. like, oh, well, we did it. I said, mate, you're not ready to sell. You know, yeah. you, you haven't got to a point where, nah, I'm done. I'm happy. I'm out of here. I just yeah. want, yeah. So, uh, and a perfect example of price negotiation, because we, we'd been talking for, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes, you know, digging into this stuff. And he blurted out, of course, I, I wouldn't sell for less than two and a half million. And I've got his accounts open on my laptop. And I went, oh, okay, that's interesting. I said, so last year your your you know your profit was 270k. So I said, by my reckoning, that's about 10 years for me to get my money back. And I said, you know, would you wait that long? And he rolled his eyes and he went, No, not really. I said, so what do you think it's worth? And he went, mm, not that much. <laughs> and there you go. And then we went back to the conversation about golf. So, you know, the, the whole value thing is often heavily bullshitted, to be frank. You know, it's not a difficult metric. You've made quarter of a million quid for the last four years. We'll assume that all things being equal, it's going to do the same for the next four years. So guess what? It's a million quid, mm. you know, because it's going to take me four years to make that money without doing anything to the business to pay you back, Mr. Mm. Seller. You know, that's, that's it, really. Where do you want to go from there? So unless you really understand their motivation, their emotional commitment, and what they want to do next... I think it's a lot harder to have that hardcore conversation around value than if you can then relate it back to, yeah, but you only need quarter of a million quid to pay off your mortgage and 
do the thing that you want to do and travel the world. And how about we give you half a million because then you've got a lot, nice bit of lump of cash in your pocket and that takes care of your tax. And, you know, it's a very different conversation than just a price. And that's one of the things that we try really hard to do. So often there can be a mismatch probably nearly on every deal between what they would like to retire on as a notional uh, figure and what the business is actually worth based on the trade. Yeah. Um, I've experienced a number of times where owners will go, well, that's the money I want. That's what I want. And it bores no relation to the actual, well, at least the profits that they're pro- posting in their accounts. They've had other yeah. lifestyle benefits through their business. Yeah. How do you help um, negotiate that kind of negotiate? Possibly the wrong word. You know, navigates better that conversation with the realization that what they think they their business is worth and what it is really worth is two different ballparks. Well, believe it or not, pretty much what you just described. We literally right. have that conversation. So, you know, in the past, I used to kind of used to try to bounce around it and come up with nicely worded statements and so on but life's ticking on and I haven't got time for that so I'm, I'm fairly straightforward in a perfectly pleasant amiable way but it's kind of like come on share with me what you want to do next why you know why what is your magic number you know and why um, sometimes the magic number is to do with um, ego mm-hmm. so they feel like after all these years they should be getting x from the business and it's usually got seven zeros Yes. Um, somewhere in there or six zeros rather, um, six or seven. And if there's more than one partner, almost certainly that's going to push the price up because they each feel that they should be getting a seven figure sum as a minimum. So that's a challenge. If you've got an individual seller, it's sometimes a bit easier because they, they just got one number to worry about when there's two partners or three partners, then that tends to have an impact on price as well. Um, Lack of advice is another one. Having decent advisors around, you know, how to manoeuvre around tax, what your cost implications. Often they either don't, they haven't thought about it, or they they perceive that the the bill and the costs are higher than they thought they were going to be, but they don't actually know that. So we try to help them around that tax view as well. So do you understand what used to be called entrepreneurs tax relief? I've forgotten what they called it now, but. And do you understand about CGT? Do you understand that you can effectively write off some of your deal costs against tax, for example? And they kind of go, oh, no, I didn't know I could do that. So we try to not be an honest broker, but but to, to delve into what do they understand about the process yeah. um, so that, that they're on the same page as to the outcome of the sale, at least in terms of cost. And, and then try very hard to say, OK, but what do you really need? You know, what, what What do you want to do next? You know, for example, if you want to fly around the world experiencing different things with your significant other, are you going to want to turn left on the plane or right? How much, <laughs> how much does that cost? You, yeah, you know, yeah. why? Are the kids put through university now, bank of mum and dad? Or, you know, where are you in that life cycle, really? And we're not afraid to ask those questions. Now, sometimes people go, basically, it's none of your business. I want X. That's a more difficult conversation to have because then you're just kind of manoeuvring around price and all you can then do is go, well, look, here's the performance of your company. Sure. All things being equal, we'll we'll take a flat line for the next 12 months. Um, What I try to do these days is to say, look, everybody wants more than probably the business is worth. Why? Two reasons. One, they don't necessarily know what they need. And secondly, it's that fear of this is my one shot. I don't want to leave any money on the table. 
So what I try to do now, particularly with you know, tax looming, is kind of go, look, we can lock in some element of this is the value today. But you know what? If I'm acquiring your business and I'm benefiting from the years that you've put in, what we call the, the blood, sweat and years, then I'm happy to release some of that future value back to you as a quid pro quo. And then we can get a structured deal and we can offer greater value based on future performance. The problem with that, of course, is you'll get some smart ass broker going, well, he's no longer involved in the business. And I'm like, I get that. But that's where he has to decide, are we the kind of buyer that he wants to sell to? Does he believe in us and the journey we want to take the business on and that we're going to add value and, and grow the business and look after it, you know, or something else? And, and, and that's where, you know, that sort of conversation kicks in. Uh, years ago, to give you an example, I was three days away from buying an electrical contractor and the deal was scuppered by their lawyer for two reasons. One, she was an idiot. Secondly, <laughs> because the business had been a, a regular cash cow for them. They had like a retainer for HR and various other things. So she could, you know, evidently uh, see losing that income stream. Really? So, and there were a lot of shareholders because it had been a cooperative. So we were negotiating with the MD and the company secretary and it was all going great, really good deal structure, fully funded, all the preparation done, sale and purchase agreements, literally three days away. And then there was a final meeting of the, the shareholders. And one of them quite rightly said, you know, what about the deferred? And the deferred was secured with charges on the, on the business and all that sort of stuff. There was, it was all in the sale and purchase agreement. And she breathtakingly said, oh, no, you'll never see the deferred consideration. Well, you can imagine the uproar in the room okay. um, at that point. Uh, and the deal fell over. And then she presented them with a bill for £70,000 <gasps> for a £3 million turnover business for not completing the deal and allowing them to exit. Quite extraordinary. Wow. It was horrific. That's so bordering yeah. on professional negligence. That. Uh, well, yeah, pretty much. Hence, you know, deal prevention police. Yeah. So she, she scuppered that deal comprehensively, really. Um, so it does happen. You know, you do, you do get those kinds of things going on. And that's why I said we, we much, much earlier on in the process now start to talk about, well, who's on your deal team? Who have you got? Who's helping you? Because, we want to engage with them as much as we do with you. We don't want to waste time almost, you know, having a great time building a relationship. You're great. And then somebody else drips in your ear. Oh, ooh, we're not sure about that. Because then not, not unreasonably, you're going to go, oh, was Guy trying to have me over there? Oh, dear. You know, we, we really try hard to be open and straightforward with people from the get-go. This year, I've helped a client sell his business. And um, just thinking back through how that worked, there was a lot of time spent up front about relationship. And then actually, um, as the seller, the seller solicitor, I was helping the seller, as the seller solicitor threw um, a number of queries in, way more, we'd already covered it ahead of terms, didn't need to necessarily go through that. Yeah. And then said, oh, all of a sudden, when we were expecting to do the deal, the completion before Christmas, oh, it's going to be another eight weeks away. Yeah. And it was down to the strength of the relationship between the two parties that they just had a chat about it and we just said look we're not trying to do you over and you can have the pragmatic conversation about the the lawyer just doing tech checking everything and doing everything they can to ensure that you're safe and your relationship to know that it's on the going on and don't want to lose the deal you want to go on the right track and so it yeah. was the relationship that created the opportunity and secured it in the end yeah, hundred percent some top tips in terms of lawyers make sure both sides are on a fixed fee yeah, uh, focuses the mind of the lawyers um, to get stuff done and not argue and you know try to point score on 
uh, on clauses that frankly are not that important. Yeah. You mentioned about heads of terms. For me, heads of terms should be a crystallization of the agreement between the parties that then should be reflected in the sale and purchase agreement, albeit, you know, bringing things like warranties and so on. But, you know, that's really important. Those two documents are reflected almost a mirror of each other. So fixed fees. And, and then I always use a, 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 what we call an acquisition completion plan. So it's, it's basically a Gantt chart or a, or a project plan mm-hmm. that focuses the mind on for everybody involved in the process then. By this date, that has to happen. And you have to get sign up from the lawyers, accountants, tax, whatever it might be, funders, everybody, every man jack that's involved in that deal gets that plan and acknowledges it and says, yes, we can deliver that piece of work on that date. So we hit that end date. Uh, and I firmly believe that if you don't have that, stuff just drifts. People go, oh, yeah, yeah I'll get around to it. And lawyers are, are sometimes the, the worst because they're trying to juggle 15 different things at a time and it's like oh yeah whatever i'll do that next week you know and you and i like come on i want to be done on that friday you know exactly exactly yeah and then once let's let's just skip a little bit in the time frame you've got a deal secured you are taking over from a position of tinkering rather than getting yourself a new job yes are there certain things that you want you focusing on in those early days those first 90 100 days yeah, I mean, that starts right almost at the beginning. So from the moment we start to look at a company, I'm already framing in my mind, if I did complete, what am I stepping into? Mm-hmm. So really early on in the process, we're looking at organizational charts, excuse me, skill sets, experience, expertise in, in the management team, identifying gaps, um, areas of, you know, where, where things might need uh, improving. Vast majority of the time, Owner-managed businesses have little or no marketing or sales process because they become uh, little ecosystems. They become quite secure in the relationships they've got with their customer base. They deliver good services, good products. They're known for that, and that's how they they maintain their business flow. And you say to them, like I mentioned before, you know, what do you do for marketing? And they kind of look at you blankly. So usually that's an area that we look at quite closely, how we can then implement marketing lead gen processes and bolster a sales process to convert leads into sales. Um, We will look closely at operational capability, scalability. We're interested in how, if we we turbocharge the marketing sales process, are we gonna kill the business because they haven't got the capacity to grow? So we're looking for businesses that have got some headroom in capacity from the day that we buy them without having to increase headcount and so on. not necessarily are people not working hard, but are they smart enough in the way that they operate? Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, obviously finance, we look at, we're going to probably introduce some element of debt into the deal. So we've got to worry about debt service. We've also got to worry about the capacity to then grow. So if we're servicing debt, can we, if needs be, borrow more money to buy more equipment, yeah. hire yeah. more people? And all those sorts of things. So those are the things that we look at because all of those then impact on what we do in the first 90, 100 days. What's the point of paying? What do we need to focus on first? And the interesting thing when you're financially modeling that, you don't yet intimately know that business. So there's probably a little doubt around um, the accuracy of your your cash flow forecasting when you're wanting to push for growth and you're servicing debt, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. What, what, What I would say is that I've... 
generally been able to have pretty good, meaningful conversations with vendors around those sorts of things. You know, how good are their numbers? Um, again, because we, we've moved more towards the larger operations, there's more confidence around the quality of the numbers. Um, you know, they've, they've perhaps got a financial controller or, you know, someone that you feel reasonably confident stacks up and they use half decent accountants to do the year end and you know things that you can delve into and go look at the sage backup zero backup always get those you know don't rely on just bits of paper but actually look at the data yeah, and sure. that's time and money well spent is getting an accountant to to run the numbers through a backup and go okay they're making like 30 different adjustments every month there's a problem yeah. or no it's sweet it's tidy everything's bang on trial balances are right, you know, whatever the numbers are, they're pretty accurate first time, then that gives you confidence as well. So those little techniques all come into play before you've done the deal, really, and, and help to frame what you're going to do next. Um, and as I said, most of the time, it's either about bolstering operational capacity. Um, so they could absorb more work. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've come across quite a few sellers who kind of go oh we don't want to do any more work mm-hmm. and you're like what i don't know we could do more but you know we're basically we're not asked because yeah. i make a fine living from the business as it is why yeah. work yeah. any harder you know and yeah. I, I scratch my head at that one but i get it you know these are lifestyle companies when all said and done and well yeah okay why work any harder if you've got your place in spain and your house is paid off and you've got a couple of nice cars they're like yeah okay i get that and that for me, that was always the raison d'etre behind acquisitions from day one. It's like, do you know what? I can't work any harder. I can't resource the business anymore, but I could buy some more and then we can go again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that does make sense, but that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that gap, that opportunity to take an okay business and make it better. Yeah. And in so doing, improve the quality of the work experience for the people in the business as well. Because most sellers have very much a cost mindset, not an investment mindset. So let me give you an example. Business we bought 2017. You know, there's always that fear factor with the management team. Oh, you know, what's going to happen to me? And we go, what will make your life better? And and they were like, well, actually, if I could have a couple of screens for my, for my computer, and we're done. And the sheer pleasure on their faces, yeah. <laughs> just getting yeah. a second screen yeah. Yeah. to be more productive. It's just... Yeah weird you know and that was literally in the hundreds of pounds not tens of thousands of investments simple stuff makes life better for you know the people on the ground so i've often found the simple things are often the best things to do at the beginning as well um they're not they're not difficult um, but they're just a little bit of thought applied and that obviously helps get people on board oh 100 yeah. yeah it's like oh Okay, so I'm not going to lose my job, and now my job's a bit better. And oh, okay, and they come to work with a spring in their stride. So yeah. absolutely, yeah. With some new excitement and optimism about the new owners and the future of the company and their role. Yeah, yeah. E- even just saying, "What do you think?" <laughs> yeah. You know, often, what you're asking me for an opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Businesses are are a benign dictatorship a lot of the time. Mm. You know, the staff, and there's one of the reasons why people sell. It's like, do you know what? I'm done now. Because they don't create an environment where the people make the decisions, empower those people to make the decisions, who are best placed to make decisions, you know, to, to help the business grow. And they tend to be, what do you want to do, John? Uh, what should we do today? You know, every Monday morning, everyone's coming to the business owner, and that's the pressure the business owner feels, but they've created that environment. 
Sure, sure. Because that often business owners are control freaks. You know? yeah, it's like absolutely. my baby, you know. So yeah. all those things come into play when you when you're looking at the company. We, I could go on for a long time talking to you about this. I, I, I love this, and you were just merely sort of scratching the surface of, of of your experience. If anybody wants to find out more about the Fidelis Group or their um, Business Buyers Club, how do they how do they do that? Well, the, the website's are the easiest place to go. So um, thefidelisgroup.co.uk. Uh, there's lots of information on their resources. We have a valuation calculator. So anybody interested to find out what we think their business might be worth at a, at a glance that's on there um and then for the business buyers club it's the businessbuyersclub.co.uk as well uh, and we're in the business of helping encourage teach uh, improve knowledge and so on for anyone who wants to expand through acquisition recognizes the strategic opportunity and then uh, yeah there's a wealth of expertise and, and knowledge in there as well and what I also hear from you is that you back it up with a lot of processes that actually yes. help the mechanics of a deal get over the line, which I think uh, is, a, is a real big benefit of what you provide as well. Uh, Guy, thank you so much for your time today. It's a real privilege to have spent this with you and you've added so much value. So thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Nice to uh, nice to have been on the call, Gavin. And uh, as I say, good luck to you. And thank you. And, uh, yeah. and the listeners. And if I can do anything to help, then um, please reach out. Hey Gavin here. I want to get to know you. You're part of my community now. If you are serious about significant growth over the next two to three years, whether organically or through acquisition, let's jump on a call. Let me understand you and your business that much more so that I can come up with some suggestions that you can get on with implementing right now. Go to bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. That's bit.ly forward slash call with Gavin. You've been listening to the Business Mastermind podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that more people like you can get their business back on their own terms, enjoy more success and create more impact.